Welcome back to Gut Talk with Jill and Jenna. We're sisters on a mission to help simplify gut health and help you live a more sustainable, healthy life, making health more digestible, if you will. Hey, Jen. Hi, Jilly. Another episode in the books. We had Dr. Asia Muhammad on, Mm -hmm. and she's spunky. Yeah. We like her. We like her. (laughs) She is a naturopathic doctor Mm -hmm. who focuses on gastrointestinal healing, uh, liver support, metabolic health, the whole nine yards. And... She, what I love about her social media platform, but also the way she presented herself on the podcast is she's just real Mm -hmm. and she tells it how it is. Um, And we dove into a lot of different gut health topics. I think one thing that she did was um, help kind of disband or get rid of some of the myths that come along with gut health. Yep. But we also kind of talk a little bit about uh, stomach acid PPIs and it's okay if you don't know what they are. Yeah, we dive into that. You know what her top tips are for people who are struggling. Yep, actions that you can take, and it's really a pun intended. It's a lot of digestible information from a doctor, and I think it was incredibly insightful. And I think you all will learn a lot from this. We also talk about dun 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 food sensitivity test. Yep, because that's a really common question, so we get her take on that as well and just really learned a lot from her and she's awesome. No BS as Jill said, so we're really excited for you to listen. And at the end of the podcast, she uh, we talk about a, a topic to bring awareness to underprivileged communities and the different health struggles that they go through. I've learned a lot on this topic from Dr. Asia, mm-hmm. and I'm really excited to hear y'all, y'all's reaction and just, you know, really excited to to help educate people and um, more importantly, spread awareness. Yep. Yeah. So let's just get right into it. Here is Dr. Asia. Woo! Did you know that fiber is actually a major player in gut health, reducing bloating, balancing our microbiome, and for those into natural beauty, it also promotes glowing skin. And yet 95% of us are not getting enough, which means we're missing out on all of the incredible benefits fiber has to offer. Clear Digestive is out to reimagine fiber by offering a fiber and prebiotic blend that perfectly balances soluble, insoluble, and prebiotic fiber to support overall digestive health. Their all-natural fiber blend is thoughtfully crafted from only real food ingredients like apples, flaxseed, and chia seeds and has no artificial sweeteners or fillers. Can I get an amen for that? Check out their website at cleardigestive.com and get 15% off when you use the code GUTTALK at checkout. Hi, Dr. Asia. Thank you so much for coming on Gut Talk Girls today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat with y'all. Yeah, we're excited to get into, I think you said on DMs, talk some crap, Yeah, literally. (laughs) (laughs) Love that. Uh, We wanted to start off just by, uh, we've already introed you, but by you just saying a few words about who you are and what you do and and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, so I'm Dr. Asia. I'm a naturopathic doctor. I practice in Missouri and I, I became a naturopathic doctor because I was really just tired of seeing the people in my family, my aunt, my father, my grandparents, you know, have chronic heart disease and they would take the medications that their doctor prescribed and they still 
have heart disease or die from heart disease on medication. And I just thought there has to be something else. And, you know, I grew up in a household where my mom was always very like root cause. And she'd always say, you know, if you had a headache or if you had menstrual cramps, she'd say like, your body's trying to tell you something. So, you know, figure it out. So I always grew up with this like root cause mindset. So when I, you know, was going through undergrad, I didn't know what type of doctor I wanted to be. I knew I wanted to work in the medical field. And so I found naturopathic medicine through this like book my mom kept in the house and I saw ND on it and I'd never heard that because in Tennessee, there's not any naturopathic doctors, which is where I went to undergrad. Um, and so it was a new profession. I mean, I thought this is exactly what I've always wanted to do. And so I found the school, applied, got in, then I did a residency after um, for three years. So I was out in Arizona for like eight years total after undergrad doing more training in school. So yeah, and I love it. So I see chronic cases, GI, liver, metabolic issues, and just kind of add naturopathic tools to the toolbox for patients. Awesome. That's yeah. So sweet. That's great. Um, and so to just really jump in, Jenna and I have created some questions for you that we've seen, um, for the people listening, if you haven't checked out Dr. Asia's Instagram, uh, one thing I really love is the way you lay out posts. There tends to be, I think like seven to nine slides, maybe. Yep. Yeah. And, <laughs> and you, you break down, like if, if you're giving some resources as to how to help your gut or help your liver, you're saying, okay, this is what you need more of, but then also hear what these things actually are and the ways you can right. find them. So it's a really great way just to understand, uh, a lot of people who listen know I'm the one who doesn't know as much about gut health. And so I always look for those like really easy tips, like, okay, garlic, garlic, I can do that. Mm-hmm. Or cherries. I can do that too. Um, but <laughs> We talk all the time about how prevalent gut health issues are, and we were wondering kind of to get your take, why do you think they're so prevalent in today's world um, and why you feel it's so important to address on on your uh, platforms? Yeah, you know, I think that gut health issues are so prevalent because everybody has to eat, right? And, you know, if you're eating, there's a likelihood you have gut issues. If you live in a certain environment, there's a likelihood you may have gut issues, but you know, a lot of the people that I see with gut issues have not necessarily like poor quality diets, but it also has to do with maybe like incidents of bacterial or gut infections that were never properly um, eradicated or healed. Or there's like kind of these like sequelae that linger on because of these types of infections. So I think also there's a lot of like psychological kind of stress in our lives and just imbalance. And a lot of people suffer from anxiety, depression, other mood disorders. And that also is strongly linked to the gut and the microbiome. So I think it's just multifactorial and like the times we live in now, the stressors we have, and then the foods, the quality of foods that we, we eat as well. Yeah. And that's so true. And speaking on behalf of Jill and myself, it literally was, it wasn't just one thing that as to why we developed issues. It was the culmination of since birth, um, you know, fed antibiotics as a kid growing up. Yes, we ate nutrient dense foods, but we were still stressed and anxious and we had a lot going on. We, um, we were both athletes. So we had a lot of pressure on ourselves. And as we got older, some of these issues started to just increase and get worse. And that led to that overgrowth of, you know, bacteria or those imbalances. And it felt like it was just this one thing after the next. And I think what's so important to understand with everyone is the fact that sometimes it is one thing, but a lot of times it's multiple factors. And I think that's where, you know, you come in handy is to explaining to people like, 
when you have clients and when you see people, it is typically, would you say it is typically a perfect storm or would you say it's just that one factor? It depends. Um, I think it really depends, but most people that I see, it's like multifactorial, right? Mm -hmm. But there are some cases where there's like one incident or highlighted bacterial overgrowth or parasite or yeast and you can quantify these things with objective measures, but I think most people, it is multifactorial, um, for sure. What are some of those common themes that you're seeing in the multifactorial ways of people developing these chronic gut issues? So the biggest thing I see, um, is this diet in terms of lack of adequate nutrition or consumption of just poor quality foods with like terrible additives or excessive sugars in the diet. Another thing I see is like a chronic history of antibiotic use or certain mm-hmm. medications like NSAIDs, ibuprofen, Aleve, aspirin, Advil. A lot of people use those daily, weekly, have been prescribed them for, you know, um, joint issues and so headache, chronic headaches, and then they, they have gut issues. Um, I also see, you know, stress, a lot of like high stress cases and high stress environments, people notice that their GI symptoms are worse than say if they were on vacation, they don't really have any GI symptoms. So that clues me into maybe like stress, but, um, typically those are the things I see with regard to folks with multifactorial GI issues. Um, yeah. I want to touch on one. I mean, Jenna, for everyone who can't see us, Jenna and I are just like nodding our heads. We're like bobbleheads right now because you're just hitting all the points that we talk about as well. But one thing that I want to point out is that over-the-counter medication, growing up, I played softball and then I played collegiately. I don't even, I try not to even think about how much Tylenol, Advil, all that good stuff. It was so second nature because we've been kind of taught in today's world that it's healing us. It's helping us. It's relieving the pain. It's getting rid of the headache, the cramping. Um, and, and there are certain instances, for instance, like when I sprain my ankle and we need the swelling to go down, maybe that is a, a more proper use of it. But there were weeks to months that I probably took some sort of pain medication at least once a day. And I think it's good to highlight, okay, although it does have some sort of um, healing point to it, right? Like relief. Relief. Yeah. Um, be aware, at least, of how much you are taking it because it is negatively affecting your gut. Completely. You know, I remember seeing cases of people who are prescribed these medications for joint pains or chronic migraines, and the next thing you know, after four weeks, they have an ulcer in their stomach, right? And so... Yeah, I mean, they are, they do ulcerate mucosal tissues. They really can mess with your gut, your kidneys as well. So, yeah, I think that, you know, a lot of medications are really wonderful tools in the short term, but it's like long term, longer than like, a, you know, a month or even a couple of weeks can really be detrimental to the gut. Yeah. And, and another thing that you pointed out was just the poor quality of food or the, you know, what we call like that, what average American diet, standard, standard yeah. American diet yeah. for today. Um, when you're giving your clients advice, how do you talk to them about just shifting that perspective in the way that they should be eating? Yeah. You know, um, I typically discuss like food with my patients at length because that's like the root of health, right? Mm -hmm. We, We have to eat. And so, um, I typically see cases where, 
people are not aware of the detrimental effects of gluten in the gut. And I'm not somebody that's like, oh my gosh, you can never have gluten. But if you have right. chronic health issues and chronic inflammatory issues, and you need to have, take that out for a period and then reintroduce it to see kind of if it potentiates or just keep it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a big one because gluten is contained in so many products that are not bread, right? So people think, oh, gluten is just bread. I avoid bread, but it's kind of everywhere if you eat a lot of processed foods. So it's, that's a little tricky, but you know, um, I typically try to, you know, encourage patients to change their diet, just looking at what we want our outcome to be. Right. And so I'll tell them like, look, if this is a, like a big thing, let's just take it off for this short period of time. You can reintroduce it. We'll see kind of how your system behaves and go from there. I don't really have a lot of issues. I will say that sometimes it's tricky to get people to be very compliant with elimination of like certain food sensitivities because some of them can be so ubiquitous in their diet if they consume a lot of certain types of foods. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I'll just like make it plain and say, here's a great you know way to kind of shift your diet completely, just focusing on like just main category to eat and just keeping certain foods out of the house. We often get asked what food sensitivity tests. I think that's people so deeply think that they have so many food sensitivities with maybe they do, but we know as practitioners or as doctors, it not isn't necessarily that food that maybe it is gluten, let's say, but the food that's causing the issue, but that underlying imbalance and so people, you know, and maybe a food sensitivity will come out with, okay, maybe you're sensitive randomly to apples or you have a sensitivity to broccoli. But when it comes to food sensitivities, will you explain why maybe a food sensitivity test by, say, a company that you is popular among the mainstream media, um, why you wouldn't just go and do that right off the bat? Totally. I love talking about food sensitivity <laughs> tests. Um, I get asked a question a lot about food sensitivity tests. And um, a lot of times when people ask these questions because they've seen something online or they like react when they eat foods. But many times if you have reactions to foods, it's an issue with the gut. And, you know, you shouldn't have so many reactions to foods. If you have a few 10 or so on a, like a panel that has 150 or 200, that's not anything I'd worry about. But if somebody has like 15 plus, like, you know, typically that's where I like kind of think, is there some intestinal permeability happening? You know, when I was in training, I would see IBS and I see IBD. So IBS is irritable bowel syndrome. IBD is inflammatory bowel disease. And they just exist. Um, there, well, one's autoimmune and one is just more like, um, it's not a functional, but it's pretty much a diagnosis of exclusion. When you get diagnosed with IBS, it's like, there's no organic disease here. So we're going to stick this label on you, but there is a difference with regard to the food sensitivity test and the results for people with IBS and IBD. Whenever I see IBD, they have like 40, 50, 60 foods that are like elevated on their panels. When I see people with IBS, it's like 10, 15, 20, maybe never as much as IBD. So I think there is some utility in them. I just don't know if everybody needs to have one done. I mean, I find that most folks, when they take out the main kind of food sensitivity that a lot of people react to, they tend to do better. Um, And then sometimes with like IgG testing, like you know, your immunoglobulins are these like immune type proteins in the body. And, you know, IgA is the one that lines your mucous membrane. So everywhere in your mouth, your cheeks, anywhere you have mucus, you have IgA hanging out, even in the lungs. So 
Um, when you see IgG tests, like if somebody is deficient in like IgA or certain immunoglobulins, which you won't know unless you actually test them, then the test results may not actually be accurate for IgG because there can be overcompensation in some of the immunoglobulins. The IgG specifically can be hyperactive if IgA is low. So you have these kind of false positive responses. So mm -hmm. I don't really use a lot of food sensitivity tests. Like I have folks that are like, look, I don't really want to do any elimination diet. I'd rather just right. see kind of what my body's reacting to. If that's the case, I will use tests that like use IgG, IgA, um, complement other markers to kind of give me a better picture beyond just IgG. I just don't find them to be reliable and repeatable. Um, but I think they're useful with, with regard to some cases. Sure. And I think the key word is some, um, because they, when people have gut issues, I mean, we've experienced as well, it can be a the m massive issue is having to eliminate so much and feeling like you're at such a lack. And I think that's causes issues. And I just posted something about not getting too deep into it, but having gut issues can also create this distorted eating pattern of feeling like everything is going to disrupt your digestive system. Or if you eat too much sugar, you're going to have these overgrowths or because as much as social media has been such an impactful place for people to find answers. You know, obviously we say talk to your, you know, qualified practitioner, doctor. Um, it has become this thing of, okay, you have to do this. And then you need to do the low FODMAP diet. And then you need to make sure you're taking all of these supplements. And it becomes this, oh my goodness, where do I even start? Yeah. Well, and kind of going off of that, for everyone listening who's like, okay, that's fine. I'm not sold on a food sensitivity test. Mm -hmm. What would you recommend instead, just eliminating the the gluten and, and dairy to see how your body reacts or where would you leave yeah. people? I typically recommend if somebody is not interested in a food sensitivity test or if I'm not interested in the food sensitivity mm -hmm. test, I'll typically recommend elimination of gluten, dairy, corn, soy, just add all additives. So just not eating processed packaged crap, you know, at least for two weeks. Um, the best response time would be six to eight weeks. And then you can kind of challenge the system. But the easiest way to do that is just to kind of cook your meals and meal prep. So you know what you're cooking, just buy whole food, you know, ingredients, fresh fruits, vegetables, beans, lentils, clean meats, whatever you're eating, you know, just buy it like in the store. You can see what it is, you know, avoid packaged things. If you're eating packaged foods, you know, make sure it's like five ingredients or less, like little tips like that. So some people are like, I really love some, I want some chickpea pasta or whatever pasta they have out now. You know, so I'm like, just read the ingredient label, make sure it's no this, no that. So I try to keep it simple and not some people to the grocery store with like a list of like things to avoid. It's like, oh, avoid all these like hundred ingredients instead of just like here, eat, make sure you're, it has this or has that. So that's where I typically start. Most folks do fine. I will say that some people are not really aware of how insidious gluten can be in and dairy and corn and soy can be in processed foods and like these alternative names for them so that's the mm -hmm. tricky part especially because a lot of people i see do eat like pre-packaged foods and so because it's easier and i get it, it's more convenient um, but that's i think the challenging part is like making time for preparing meals but i feel like once people get that down they're pretty much okay and then when they reintroduce it it makes such a huge impact on their body a negative impact where they're like oh i'm not eating that again or you know, maybe it doesn't impact them at all. But I find that when you eliminate and then reintroduce and people have that negative response and their symptoms come back or they're worse or, and, or a new symptom occurs, um, then that makes it easier for them to be more compliant going forward. Yeah. That's like, that's like me. And 
I used to be obsessed with like hot Cheetos and I use that as my example all the time whenever I'm talking about anything, but I have not had them in years because that like eating a hot cheat, right. <laughs> eating hot Cheetos makes me think of those massive stomach aches I used to have those piercing ones. So, and I think too, once you start eating real food consistently, yes. your taste buds change majorly. Yep. Like, I, I was so funny. I was looking today at the store. There's a new Oreo out. It's like <laughs> the mega. I've never seen anything like it. There's more filling than there is Oreo by a long shot. And it was funny because maybe a few months ago, I was staying in a hotel room. I was really hungry. And I was like, oh, I'll just indulge in yeah. two Oreos. I had a one bite and I was like, oh, these right. are so gross. And I used <laughs> to love them. But our taste buds, like, they really do evolve. And when you start eating real quality foods um it makes such a difference even in like chocolates that you eat um you know some really pure quality chocolate brands versus you know all the other ones john and i don't exactly know what we can and cannot say without you know getting like the getting sued so we always joke about that right. so um so we we won't call the names out per yeah se. um but no i think that's a really it's so difficult, especially not being like uh, traditionally educated, whether you're a doctor, pr practitioner, whatever it may be. Um, but when you're at the grocery store or when I'm at the grocery store, I'm Googling things left and right because sometimes big words are just fancy names for something very simple. And other times, like my rule for myself is if I don't know what it is after I've Googled it, they're not getting exactly. it. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> That's a pretty it. good. No, it's not at all. Um, I like that. Yeah. Right. Because <laughs> that's the re the reality is, is I want to know what I'm consuming and I want to know what I'm putting in my body. Um, and a lot of times it's just not worth it to have. And I was diagnosed with IBS years ago and um, I went to a world renowned gastroenterologist who didn't take insurance. So it was a pricey trip as well. And he said, unfortunately, there's really nothing you can do except for we can put you on some antidepressants to slow down the signal from your brain to your gut. And I took them for a few weeks and then I became really depressed because I wasn't depressed before and it was like altering things in my brain and all, everything was worse. Nothing was better. Wow. Yeah. And so I, I liked what you said too, just about IBS kind of being like this like label because that's something we've put out on TikTok and things like that. And the responses we get are like, people are almost like upset because they've been diagnosed with IBS. And the way I look at it, as it, it, look at it is it's a great thing, right? Like they're putting some, a label on you. Like you don't actually, it's curable, right? Um, there's, there's things you can do and you just kind of have to search for the answers, but people almost get offended because they're like, no, I have IBS. And it's like, well, sure. Like you have the symptoms. Millions of people do. <laughs> right. And, and that, and that kind of goes along the lines of, right, as you mentioned, just because you get a diagnosis doesn't mean that this is the end-all be-all. And I think what we talk about and what you talk about so deeply is the fact that a diagnosis can, as you said, of exclusion, meaning you don't have something like cancer or they ruled things out. But that means you can start taking those steps, as we said, quality foods, maybe taking out those m massive triggers. What else would you say people with someone like IBS um, could do? Or maybe it is having to go see a naturopathic doctor. Um, but what are those next steps that you would say for someone who's sitting there saying, I have IBS, I don't know what else to do? Um, 
I think that every IBS patient um, should get tested for SIBO. Mm. You know, Dr. Mark Pimentel and Dr. Allison Seebecker, they're like leading names in SIBO research and Mm -hmm. literature. And they estimate that 60 to 70% of people with IBS have SIBO. So everybody that I see with IBS, um, chronic IBS, like I can just tell with somebody's symptom picture when we're talking in their initial visit, I can literally tell if they have SIBO or not. I think it's like a gift that God gave me (laughs) and I'm grateful for it. Yeah. (laughs) Love that. So a chosen one. It's my special gift. Yeah. So I, and just certain, it it just, it's described by certain types of bloating and like postprandial or bloating after eating. And it's like, it's a certain like descriptive way people describe their bloating. And I'm like, yeah, you need to get tested for SIBO. And so I literally, we've had three cases the past, I don't know, week or so where people have IBS and I'm like, you need to get a SIBO test and SIBO is positive. It's like through the roof. So overproduction of gas and, and their small intestine. Um, and so, you know, the protocols are different just based on where someone's at in their life. If they want to do antibiotics if they want to do herbals, it just depends on what they want to do. But, um, yeah, I, I think that anybody with IBS needs to have SIBO ruled out. And, um, yeah, that's, that's where I typically start outside of like dietary, like kind of tweaks and and things like that. And then sometimes I will look at like functional stool testing, um, because if you think about IBS, it's largely an issue of the large intestine, right? That colon, right? So you have issues with your pooping, either not pooping enough or pooping too much, even the bloating piece. And so a functional stool test does not look at your small intestine or doesn't evaluate it. So you can't really diagnose SIBO on like a stool test. Um, So there has to be a breath test, but a stool test will look at your colon and talk about dysbiosis in the gut. It'll tell us if you have like, you know, too much yeast there, too much, or maybe a parasite or maybe a pathogenic bacteria or um, you know, give us insight into maybe like pancreatic and digestive function. So it's really insightful, but, and I always find dysbiosis. I mean, I've not done a single one of those tests yet and there's not been dysbiosis present. And that's largely because folks that come to see me are not like super healthy. They're coming because they have issues. So I expect to see dysbiosis present. So I'll do some of that. I may just do like some herbal protocols or some botanicals. It really, or some like supplements. It really just depends on the case and the person. But I usually start with like a SIBO test to make sure that's not present. Yeah. And we know H. pylori is in there too. Mm -hmm, Jill's mm -hmm. Jill's tested high for that one. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, We're working on that currently. Um, But you mentioned something that I want to ask for everyone at home. What is dysbiosis? Mm -hmm. So dysbiosis essentially means like an imbalance in the bacterial populations of the gut. So your microbiome is a hotspot for, well, actually it has the most bacteria of any place in the body. They're the most bacteria is contained in the gut. We used to think there was more bacteria in the gut than there are body cells. So now the literature is like, oh, maybe we were wrong. Maybe it's like equal amount. Who knows? But anyways, there's a lot of bacteria there. And you know, um, when you have dysbiosis, like a hallmark of dysbiosis is an overgrowth of this one bacteria, bacterial family called enterobacteriaceae. It's a long word, but Mm -hmm. typically when that's elevated, it's like, yeah, you have dysbiosis. And so, you know, that can be marked by production of certain chemicals through those bacteria or their cell wall products that can trigger inflammation or trigger further dysbiosis. Um, if you have low amounts of certain lactobacillus families or bifido families or um, clostridial families, because clostridial families are the main like butyrate generator. So they generate a lot of the short chain fatty acids that feed your colon cells. So if I see like different things all over the place, really low acromancia, which is needed for like the mucous membrane, then I'll think this person has dysbiosis. 
Okay. Got it. And if you do have it, are you addressing it the same way that you're addressing all the other gut health problems that we've discussed already? Just um, cleaning up what you eat, maybe addressing it with supplementation, herbals, whatever it may take. Is that pretty much the same protocol there? Yeah, I will do that, the same protocol. Um, I may add in like bacteria, so probiotics, um, spore-based, non-spore-based, I'll add in prebiotics because people have bacteria there. It's like just a really small amount. Um, so they can, you can, you can um, get the bacteria, generate, the, or not generate, but when you do a stool sample, you can test the bacteria and it's present, but it may be present in low amounts. So they have it there. You just got to grow it with prebiotics. So I'll do prebiotics, probiotics. Um, yeah. Cool. Yeah. And I think one thing too, that I want to ask, um, that I see you post a lot about is, and I think all my people who are on PPIs will thank me for this. And it is the excess PPI usage and prescript prescribing it. Yeah. Good grief. Yeah. (laughs) And I would love if you could talk about that to everyone. What is potential. Okay. So first of all, people that are on them right now or being told by their doctor, they need to be on them. Why you, and why let's start off with why you necessarily wouldn't want to be on them or on them long-term. Yeah. So PPIs are proton pump inhibitors and they block acid pumps in the stomach. So the goal is lowering the acid levels. So less acid flushes up through the esophagus and causes heartburn symptoms. They're also given for people who have like H pylori for the short duration, Mm -hmm. along with antibiotics and like antacids to kind of help clear the infection. They're also given for people with ulcers because they reduce the acid levels of the stomach so low so the stomach tissue can actually heal itself. Um, But, you know, I find them useful if somebody has like ulcers. It's like a two, three-week protocol. It's not so long. But if you're on them like for weeks or months at a time, I mean, there's so many negative effects of PPIs. The main one is that you actually need your stomach acid. Mm -hmm. Right. And when I, when you have folks with chronic illness, like they usually have low stomach acid already, because think about it like this, your stomach is like the most acidic place in the body. And so if your rest of your body is neutral pH or a little bit above that, your blood is tightly regulated. Everything else is tightly regulated. Imagine how much energy it takes your body to keep that acid so low and keep pumping it out. So on top of you not having enough energy, just cellular energy with chronic illness, it probably is also affecting your, your stomach's ability to produce sufficient acid to digest your foods. So, you know, a lot of people that are on PPIs already have other chronic illnesses. So in the, in that situation, it may not be an issue of um, too much acid, but not enough acid. And there's some theories out there that, you know, when you don't have enough stomach acid, you don't like kind of simulate that feedback response of your LES, which is that lower gate that shuts off the esophagus and the stomach. So when the, when the acid is not sufficient, the gate just kind of flaps open. So acid comes up whenever it wants. So some folks I've seen get off of PPI medications. I've been on them for 10 plus years, 20 plus years, just by adding in like sufficient stomach acid supplements Mm -hmm. to stimulate stomach acid. I've seen folks that have reacted negatively to like added stomach betaine or stomach acid supplements, but it really is case by case. Um, but PPIs like can damage your, it can be associated with like lung related issues as you get older. It can be associated with kidney issues, associated with small bowel issues like SIBO is mm-hmm. one of them associated with kind of neurological issues as well. I mean, there are a lot of long-term effects of not having enough stomach acid and then also just side effects of medication. They can also be associated with diarrhea and changes in your bowel habits. Mm-hmm. So if you're taking anything from that, it's you need adequate stomach acid in 
your stomach to be able to digest properly and have everything flowing because digestion and and the whole process is has to be at a certain pH level of acidity, right? And so for anyone listening, that is one thing, let's say, that they can take with them. What If they are on a PPI, let's say, what is what is something that you would do as an alternative? I know you said potentially, you know, titrating stomach acid, but are there other things that people can do if they do feel like they have a lot of, you know, acid reflux or heartburn or are upper GI acid issues? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot you can do for um, acid reflux. I actually just like wrote an ebook on this and literally has a thousand million things you can do for acid reflux well, that I've used. Where do they go to download that? <laughs> oh, it's just the link is in my bio. It's oh, just cool. Says, okay, like, sweet. We'll we'll link it um, yeah. in the show notes. Cool. Okay, yeah. So you know, when it comes to acid reflux, and I get this question a lot because acid reflux you can really f up your esophagus. You know, mm-hmm. with excessive acid there and it causes erosions and hardening of the esophageal tissue, and um, I commonly will. I'll first bridge people so I don't just take them off with PPIs because when you stop a PPI, you can actually cause like rebound hyperacidity where the acid pumps just kind of go crazy because they were suppressed for so long. And your symptoms are actually worse when you're, you know, titrating, getting off cold turkey than they are when you first started. So Mm. um, I'll typically bridge people with different herbals that support like the mucosal tissues and tonify the mucosal tissues. And then I'll add in specific either like supplements or herbs that actually have been shown and demonstrated to stimulate digestive juices like your stomach acid and pancreatic juices as well. And then I also make sure that there's some type of prokinetic. So something that's promoting movement down the gut, because when things sit in the stomach longer, there's actually more acid being produced to digest them. So not, it's not necessarily like the excess acid being produced, but it could be that the flap is not closing. So you don't want any more acid in there than that needs to be. Right. So if somebody's not digesting their food or their stomach's kind of hanging on to food for a long period of time, it's going to just lead to more acid being produced. So just something to actually keep the gut moving um, is useful as well in acid reflux. Mm. Before we close out every podcast episode, we like to leave people with resources. That way they can go and be their own health advocates. Where do you point people, whether it's a social media page, a book, a podcast, whatever it may be, where you're like, listen, it's free or it's not that expensive and you can teach yourself or you can learn more? That's a great question. You know, my favorite resource, because that's updated often, is the EWG, the Environmental Working Group. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows that one, or most people know that one. You can find so many useful tools for how to shop better, um, how to kind of like check out what's happening in your local area. I often will tell folks, like, you know, if you're looking to see the contaminants in your tap water, you know, just get on there, ewg.org slash tap water, and you can put your zip code in, and it'll tell you like what's in your water locally. And so, like, locally where I'm at, I put the zip code in, there's like freaking arsenic in the water, and it's like a hundred times the, you know, EWG's limit. Exactly. And it's, you know, it's kind of shocking. And then I put in yeah. just different zip codes, my parents' zip codes, and they live in Missouri, but they live like far out, like near Missouri River. They don't really have the same thing. So I'm not sure if it's like something related to the pipes or just kind of what's been put in the water at treatment facilities. But it's really strange when you look at that and you think about consequences of excessive arsenic in the body. And so I, you know, I try to give people like, um, practical action steps that they can use instead of Mm -hmm. saying, here, go buy these expensive supplements that may work, may not work. But, you know, these are some things you can do daily. Make sure you're, you know, consuming good, dark, leafy greens or having chlorella or chlorophyll, whatever, you know, just simple things that are um, practical and affordable to help mitigate damage from the environment and stressors on the body. 
you bring up something that we really wanted to chat with you about, and that is um, talking about arsenic in the water. And, yeah. you know, um, you t- have talked a lot about the Flint water crisis, and I personally have learned a lot. You see it on the news, but um, the news doesn't educate you in a way that helps you uh, help yourself if you are someone who has suffered by drinking poor quality water or things like that. Um, but you really highlight um, so many stressors and lack of resources for those that are in underprivileged communities. A lot of times, the majority of times, I believe that they are minorities. And so we felt like this, we weren't that aware. Um, you've brought a lot of awareness. And we'd really love for you to uh, bring that awareness to our podcast and to our listeners. Um, so I guess, can you just start off by um, maybe talking about some of the things you're seeing in underprivileged communities? Yeah, you know, there's a lot of um, lack of access, you know, and so just like if I were to go to like a county um, city where I live or a city out in the county, you know, there's like good grocery stores. And I say good, I mean, they have quality foods. Their foods don't have a ton of additives, a ton of, you know, processed chemicals in them. And these are options that are available to people that live in that community, right? And they're affordable, like places like Trader Joe's, right? Or like a Sprout. So I'm not sure what you guys have there, um, but we have like fresh time here. And so you don't really find these things in the areas where I live. And I live, I just bought a house here in the hood, like literally the where I live is the hood. So, you know, on my corner, there is no, you know, good quality grocery store. You have the just general grocery stores you find, you know, I think anywhere, but even there you have really low organic food selection. Um, you have, as soon as you go in, you have tons of just sugary crap being promoted to anybody walking in the door. Right. And we know the power of the mind and the power of suggestion. You have a ton of ads where you see like here, Burger King's new, whatever burger, Taco Bell's new, this burger. So, and I think, and not think, but in some communities, you don't really see a lot of those types of ads. And we know that in the literature and the research, you find more ads of certain products promoted to like black or Hispanic audiences. Right. And Mm -hmm. you look in these communities and you see excessive amounts of weight disparities. You see the metabolic issues and it's not just like, Oh, there's a lack of, you know, obedience or discipline or just, you know, but these foods are addictive, right? So you get the the mental stimulation. Here's an ad, go buy this, you go buy the food. And now you have actual dopamine giving you a response to say, Hey, you like this. And it's like actual food addictions happening that I think we don't address food addiction. There's a lack of access, lack of resources, you know, and then you think about environmental toxins in a lot of communities, like a lot of waste dumps or polluted areas, you know, you also find in close proximity to kind of these underserved or, you know, black, Hispanic, native um, community. So Mm -hmm. it's something I'm passionate about because I just, it seems criminal, you know what I mean? To see communities be poisoned in this way. And then there's like all this cancer, all this metabolic disease, and it's not just crappy diet or, you know, crappy lifestyle. I mean, there's a lot of that in all communities, but I do think that there's a lot of a huge component we're missing. There's this doctor, is it Dr. McGregor? I can't think of his name, but he's, um, I'm pretty sure it's Dr. McGregor. He's a big how not to die guy. And he was saying he thinks the number one cause of obesity is advertisement, right? Where the power of the mind, the power of our mind. Like I know I'm an impulse buyer. If I see like, a fancy oh, yeah. pair of black leggings because I'm obsessed with all things black leggings. I'm like, oh, I have to buy those. Like they say it's this and it's moisture wick and it's 100% right. organic cotton. It's like, right. oh, I need that, right? So imagine if you're like freaking hungry and yeah. you see all these ads around you and you're like, you know, you want to eat better, do better, but the mind is so powerful. I think we underestimate that. So I'm really passionate about just kind of the raising awareness in these communities and just highlighting like, you know, corporate, um, 
corruption or tyranny when it comes to that. Yeah. It's so interesting that you say that because, um, I played softball um, growing up, and a lot of times the um, tournaments, they were in really small towns in the middle of nowhere. Um, And it was so interesting to watch the quality of food. I was so lucky to be able to grow up in a place where I wanted my, you know, smoothie king or whatever, a a better fast food option. And we would go into a town and it'd be like, you could pick from Wendy's or Taco Bell. And you couldn't find a healthy meal if you wanted to. And I, I always noticed it because I'm like, I don't want to eat this. Right. But I didn't notice it on the flip side of, you know, no, you can't, we always say no better, do better. Even if you know better, there's a lot of people out there that can't do better. Yeah. Um, And when it comes down to it, it's like, well, I'm just going to get this, you know, get this meal, you know, and it's like out of sight, out of mind once it's done. So I have a lot of friends locally that, literally eat fast food every day and they don't think anything of it and they have metabolic health issues, but that's what they've known their entire lives. And I think a lot of times people think like, if I'm not dying right now, I'm fine. Right. Right. And you have folks with really severe illnesses and they will still eat a certain way and think about, think negatively or stress in a way because they're like, well, I'm not dying or I don't have any major event happening. So it's kind of easy to to dismiss it. It's not just like black, Hispanic and native communities. You find poor white communities also, where it's the same kind of stuff being promoted, the same type of industries kind of taking over because it's, it's just, I don't, it's just, it's just a lot, you know, when you think about all that happens to these communities and it's kind of overwhelming to think about it. Cause I grew up, I grew up in a black neighborhood and I grew up in the hood. Then I thought we were like, you know, rich growing up. My dad was like, yeah, you were definitely poor. And it's just because, you know, my mom always cooked really good meals for us. Mm. And I went to school and a lot of my friends, like we'd always have good packed lunches, but she would just buy fresh produce locally, but we didn't have a lot of resources, but it's just, I thought we did just based on how we were being raised at the time. And it wasn't until I was actually older that I realized, Oh shoot. Like, you know, how we were being served at school was not okay. You know, the quality of foods that kids are getting in school is a whole other ball game as well. So yeah, we could have a whole other podcast on my opinion, yeah. of the way we feed our kids and, you know, all of the, right. <laughs> I, it's yeah, it's we'll, we'll, we'll let that be. Maybe we could cut, recircle in a few months yeah, and, but and chat about that. We appreciate you speaking out about, it, especially on social media. And I know that you're a big advocate for it. So we've, we've, we've reshared the Flint water crisis, um, post, oh, thank but you. I, I, I just, you know, I think it's about educating ourselves and being aware of it too, and not being naive to what's happening. You know, Jill and I were in a big city with a lot of incredible places to eat and you know, we can be naive to what's happening maybe 50 miles down the road. And, and it's acknowledging that. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and like you said, bringing awareness to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of just mini light bulbs that pop on when you talk about the advertisements and the way that yep. you know, people, people are literally addicted to these foods. And, um, you know, I think hopefully one day it would be really great if we have some, I don't know if there are regulations or laws or whatever it may be that, it, to me, it's it's um, it, it is similar to the opioid crisis that's going on, where it's like we're we're literally just putting blinders up and pretending these things aren't happening. Yep. Um, and so I I think those two are similar in ways of they're preying on people that exactly um, that, that are vulnerable that are vulnerable. And I think just calling attention to that it makes me um, I don't know. There's obviously so much work to be done, but the more that we can bring light. Um, and just kind of turn on those mini light bulbs. Uh, hopefully the quicker, uh, we can kind of start to turn things around. 
Yeah. Yeah. I just think it's, you know, sharing and raising awareness. I think that's the first place to start because maybe there's not a lot that somebody may know, you know, they can do or, you know, be actionable about, but then maybe somebody else that saw the post or saw the content or saw the article or whatever may be like, Oh, this is something I want to help with or whatever. It's just, you know, I think just, it starts at the, the very basic level. It's just kind of like word of mouth where, where you're talking to somebody, but social media now we can like share things on a wider platform. So yeah. Yep. Which is, super cool you know yeah Mm -hmm. where um where can listeners find you on social media yeah so I only have an Instagram it's just dr dr.asia muhammad a-s-i-a-m-u-h-a-m-m-a-d I have a Twitter, but I don't really remember my Twitter name. So and I do not have a TikTok. I want to get on TikTok, but yes. I'm like, oh, I can't manage another another app. So uh, you need to get on TikTok. You have to. Honestly, don't. Yeah, right. Yeah. Save yourself. Um, right now, you were saying that your um, your client book is pretty full. Yeah. But, you know, if you feel really compelled to reach out after listening to this episode, um, you know, reach out through Instagram. You can reach out through Instagram, um, or you can just reach out through my website, which is we'll, the same as my we'll Instagram link the website. Okay. Yeah. 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 And yeah, you typically take, um, will you explain tip what you typically take the cases? Yeah. So if you reach out via my website and just kind of explain a little bit about your case, like, um, I'll respond back and let you know, but typically I see like chronic refractory GI cases, liver cases, or metabolic cases where people, when I say refractory, I mean like you've seen many different doctors and you've seen, had tried many different protocols and treatments and nothing's really worked. So I will take the case and kind of give a second, you know, set of eyes on it and then give you my opinion on kind of what could be going on and where to go from there. So, cool. yeah. Awesome. Yay. Well, thank, thank you. you. Yeah. This, this has, has been, been awesome. <laughs> Yay. We appreciate your time today. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs>